Well, it's a privilege and a blessing to uh, worship with the Faith family here at Beulah Baptist. And uh, so preparing a message this week, uh, begin to think about Beulah because I don't have a history as long as some of you uh, probably have, but uh, going back to Danny Waters and just the, some of the great pastors that y'all have had. In fact, when uh, Wayne Bray was called the South Carolina, uh, those who were here won't remember this, but... Uh, he called me and said, would you be available on such and such a date? And I said, I, I happen to be available. He said, uh, well, that's the first Sunday uh, after I'll be moved to South Carolina. I'd love for you to come and encourage uh, my church. And uh, so just a long history. And Pastor Stephen Green, uh, the pastor search team did well when they called him. Uh, he, he came as a youth pastor from Florida uh, to the Gwinnett County area. Y'all may not know this, but he went to Central Baptist Church, and Central Baptist Church had gotten down to almost nothing. I mean, maybe 15, 18 people, and uh, there were actually some churches in that area calling the church saying, are y'all going to sell your building? We, we might want to make an offer on it. And uh, had God not brought someone like Pastor Stephen there, uh, I believe that church uh, would not have made it. And I began to build a friendship with Pastor Stephen, and we used to meet about once a month, at least once a month for coffee and talk about church. And uh, after about a year of meeting with him, that church really began to grow. I told some of my buddies at the convention, I said, my fear is he's doing such a great job. We need good Georgia pastors. He's going to be called somewhere else. I said, I know he's going to be called somewhere. I just hope he stays in Georgia. And I was saying that selfishly because we need uh, pastors who are evangelistic. And I'll tell you, I work with pastors across the state. You will not find a pastor any more evangelistic than Pastor Steve. He wants to reach people, and uh, so I'm just glad to be here. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus stood before his disciples. He'd been resurrected, and he, he said some incredible words. In the name of the one who had lived the sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, he looked at them. He said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. We're a sent people. In fact, you may have never thought about this, but we identify people in Scripture, our, our spiritual heroes in Scripture, we identify them by how they were sent. You, you probably don't think about it. It's a subconscious thing. For example, uh, if I said Abraham, uh, you'd say he's the father of a great nation. Well, why would we say that? Because he was sent by God to do that. If I said Moses, uh, you might say the burning bush or you, the first thing you might think of, but that just was his call. He was sent to tell Pharaoh, let my people go and be the human instrument that would deliver uh, the Jewish people uh, from Egypt. Uh, if I mention Esther, if I mention Ruth, if I mention Mary, the mother of Jesus, if I mention John the Baptist, uh, we identify these people by how they were sent. And so I want to look at this today. I want to... Uh, Look at the passage that I think is, is the passage when it comes to being sent. It's the classic passage of someone who is sent and give you some characteristics uh, that we would need if we're going to live a life that is sent. And the passage is Isaiah chapter 6. You've all heard from this passage for Isaiah 6. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, and this is Isaiah's account. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. 
With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. We're a missional people. We are sent by God. And we're sent to do an awesome thing. We're sent to proclaim the greatest message, the greatest love story the world's ever known, that, that Jesus would come and die on the cross. And we, we proclaim that message, we're proclaiming that, hey, you can have a fresh start. You can have a new life. You can have a new beginning. Uh, your, your guilt can be forgiven. Your shame can be rolled away. Uh, God can step in and change your life. It's just the greatest love story ever. Uh, but the question is this, what does a sent pe person look like? And let me just say this. I, I'm gonna give you three characteristics that we see in Isaiah of a person who lives sent and if you have these characteristics, it's not easy to live sent. But in the demonized world we live in, if you don't have these characteristics, it is an impossibility to live as one sent. Sometimes we say this, we say, uh, every church should have a mission. I, by the way, I say that. It's not theologically correct, I say it. The, the theology really goes like this. It's not that every church has a mission, it's that God has a mission. And because God has a mission, he's, he has established the local church as the vehicle to proclaim and fulfill his mission. And so, first of all, uh, sent people worship Jesus. Sent people worship Jesus. It's convicting because most of our worship doesn't quite look like the worship in Isaiah 6. I mean, it is a tremendous time of worship. I, I, I was in a revival meeting last week in Gainesville, Georgia, and uh, one of the songs that the guest musicians sung uh, was talked about worship. And there was a phrase in the song that said, Lord, just devastate me, devastate me. And I had this on my mind, the preach this week. And I thought that's exactly what Isaiah had. We don't think of worship like that too often. For example, if someone asked you as you came in the day, what's your number one goal? Uh, you know, maybe to worship, maybe see some friends, maybe to have a great small group lesson. I doubt anybody would say, you know, I've been thinking about today, I'd like to be devastated. I would like for God to so shake me up. I, I would like for God to so speak to me that it would totally change my life by worshiping Him. By the way, from a human perspective, human perspective only, worship is dangerous. Uh, from a human perspective, because from a human perspective, you could wake up tomorrow and read your Bible and have a devotion, and God could end up sending you somewhere else to live in the world. In fact, I would imagine this church in the next month or so, maybe next two months, we begin to think about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. There is nobody that offering goes to support 
that did not have a worship encounter, and from that worship encounter, they in their heart felt the tug of God to say, quit, quit your business, quit what you're doing, uh, take your spouse, take your children, leave your family, go to China, go to Africa. Uh, worship is a time of devastation in the sense that God just wipes us out. And, and that's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, woe is me, I'm ruined. The Hebrew word is I'm melting. What he's saying is in light of who God is, I'm seeing myself, which is the most devastating thing about worship. It it's, 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 couldn't be frightening to see the Lord in all his glory. But what's more frightening is, is when you look at yourself and all of a sudden you see yourself in a way that you've never seen yourself before. Sent people worship Jesus. And again, we, we know he's worshiping Jesus because in John chapter 12, uh, John quotes Isaiah, and in verse 41 of chapter 12 of John, he says, these things Isaiah said when he saw Jesus in all his glory. And if you know the Old Testament and read that, you might say, when did Isaiah see Jesus? In Isaiah 6, he saw one of those pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it shook him to the core. Worship is the fuel for the sent person. And in fact, I've often thought this about worship, and I'm talking corporate worship right now because we're worshiping together. When we worship corporately, and we can worship anytime. There's churches in the state that might have had a Saturday night service. I know some churches that have a Thursday night service and so on. Uh, but primarily, we've seen the worship on Sundays. Sunday's the first day of the week, and I've often thought it's interesting that we'd worship on the first day of the week. I know Jesus rose from the dead. But the thing about the first day of the week is, as you worship Jesus, it's a great time to reflect if you are missional. It's the time, for example, to look back. Look back at what? In the last seven days since you worshiped last corporately on a Sunday morning, in light of being sent, how did it go? And, and, and some Sundays I'm going to say, you know, it didn't go well. Some Sundays I may say, I got so consumed with the business of life, I forgot that I was on mission. And by the way, that's a good thing to know because if I look at it every Sunday, and especially if I learn every day in my devotional life to begin to kind of check my, my sent living I can keep short accounts with God. Instead of letting a day grow into a week and a week grow into a month, and before you know it, uh, I've, I've been living 20 years, and I used to do things for God 20 years ago. I used to be used, but I don't get used much anymore. So when we worship and see Jesus lifted up, it's the time to reflect, to, to, to look back. And I'd ask you today, look back. In light of a person living sin, how'd last week go? And if you don't occasionally look back, here's what happens. You hang around folks who know nothing about Jesus. In fact, let me tell you something about your county. Every county in Georgia is this way. Every county today in Georgia has 80% of their population at home that can go to church. Some counties are worse. That's the best we are. There's some counties, for example, we did a crossover in Columbus, Georgia last year. Columbus, Georgia has about 92% of the city who will be at home today that don't go to church. And let me just say this, we have a partnership in Georgia with a different, different states. But one of the states we have a partnership with is the New England states. They have about 2%, that, that's Connecticut, Massachusetts, 2% of those states will be in church today. And, and so what I'm saying is, if I'm living sin, there is no problem finding people that I need to engage. Uh, there is no problem finding people who need to hear the good news. And that's what it is, good news. That, hey, Jesus changes life. Jesus loves you. Jesus gives you fresh starts. All the great things about the good news, is, which is why it's called good news. And then we not only look back, we look up. 
And, and, and when we look up, what we're looking at is we're looking up and gazing on the eternal truth of God. We're gazing on the eternal truth of God. Now, what is that truth? Well, he's such an exalted God, it depends on what he's showing us. Sometimes he shows us his mercy. Sometimes he shows us the Father's heart. Sometimes he shows us his love. In, in this particular worship experience that Isaiah has, a couple of things stand out. The primary thing is he gets a glimpse of the holiness and sovereignty of God. He's going to pray because the kings died. None of us in America have ever lived under a ruler that ruled as long as his king. Uzziah ruled 52 years. In fact, you can't be a president that, that long. The limits are two terms. So the most we can have in our days, eight years, and of course there was a time when men like FDR had, had four terms, but, but nobody in America has ever lived under a president who served 52 years. And so you can imagine that he was a little shaken. You can imagine that he was a little concerned. Who's gonna be the next king? Here was a king that was very sympathetic towards the people of God. Who's going to be the next king? What's interesting is he went to the temple to pray for his nation. But all of a sudden, he forgets his nation because when he sees the exalted Jesus and, and, and he begins to understand that God is a thrice holy God, he begins to look at himself. And so when we worship, there's always a revelation. God reveals something. And by the way, there's always a response. Now, we don't always have the response of Isaiah. Isaiah responded with a yes. I, I, I'll go for you. Sometimes we'll say no. We may not say no. We may say, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to wait. I'm not sure I'm going to do that now. Uh, give me some time. But when you encounter God, anything less than a yes is always a no. Any excuse is always a no at the moment. I'm not going to do that right now for whatever reason. And so God revealed himself. And that was the primary thing, the holiness of God but also, flowing out of the holiness, he learned that, hey, you're concerned about a king? All human kings die. Uh, all, all human beings pass away. But he says there is a throne that Uzziah could have never sat on, and it's occupied by the Lord. And the Lord never grows old. The Lord is always majestic. And, and, and it's a, a picture Isaiah gets that he is so exalted, uh, the, the longer the robe was, the more exalted the king was, Isaiah finds out, hey, this temple's not big enough to hold the robe of the Lord. Uh, just a symbolic suggestion saying, you've never seen a king quite like this king. And then, once we look back and once we look up, then we begin to look ahead. And we say to ourselves, based on who God is, what am I going to do? I may not get to live all this week, but if I get to live all this week, in light of who God is, how does that affect my worldview? How does that affect my mission? So, sent people worship Jesus, and they get excited about it, and it changes their life. Second thing about sent people is this. And by the way, let me just plant something. If we could ever, and, and this is actually a shame to say it this way, we should be better than this. If we could ever gather across our state on Sundays and even be on the level that we're on when we watch college football, 
I'm not sure this building would be big enough for the crowds who'd want to come. Isn't that something? I got pastor friends who, quite honestly, they're monotone, but boy, I tell you what, they're kind of boring. But when they talk about Georgia or Tennessee or Florida, man, they, they're, they're like this. Man, you should have saw that play. And I, and I think sometimes if you could preach and talk about Jesus like you talk about that football. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this. We live in a culture that has passion, don't we? We're passionate about everything. We're passionate about golf. By the way, we're, we're passionate about things like golf, and most of us can't even play it, but, but we have a passion about the game, and we, don't, we can't even play the game. I've lived in Georgia 30 years. I have a passion for the Atlanta Falcons, and that seems humorous. They ain't never won anything. I mean, 30 years, zero championships, and I still want to know that they win today. Isn't that amazing? And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I know men who never shout or gr even grunt for Jesus, but I was around one the other day. I've never seen him do anything for Jesus. I mean, if he was here today, he'd be with, like this with arms crossed. And, but boy, he, he talked about catching 18-pound bass. Brother, if he could tell his neighbors about Jesus, the way he demonstrated, I mean, he was like, I mean, he didn't just say I caught a bass. He said, man, I'll tell you what, he began to demonstrate. I mean, he's, he's that, that rod and reel, I'm casting it. And boy, he I, the third time, he did that. Because I'm going to tell you something, everywhere I go, if it's a college game, my wife and I love the Fox Theater. They don't look like church. It can be a made-up story on that stage, but people are laughing, they'll cry, they're engaged, they clap. But I, I have a Bible here that talks about God inhabits the praise of his people. I have a Bible here that talks about shout to the Lord. I have a Bible here that talks about lift up hands to the Lord. I have a Bible here, here that talks about having a demonstrative attitude when it comes to God. And I'm gonna tell you, Isaiah's worshiping and he, get, he, he is shook up. He says the whole thing begins to shake. We need a revival that would shake us, to be honest with you, shake us out of our apathy and laziness and unconcern for a culture that is running a 1,000 miles away from God. And by the way, no worse than Isaiah's day. If you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, it's a very bad culture he's in. And what God is doing, God is stepping in and saying, I don't have to have many, but if I can get you, it'll make a huge difference in impacting that particular nation for God. A second thing is this, and, and I love this. Sent people worship Jesus, but sent people are defined by their repentance and not by their sin. Now, if you just understood that, that's enough to make you shout. In other words, when God looks at me, he looks at me through my repentance and not through my sin. And so, if you asked me, what do you think about Moses, who was a sent person? Well, I think what any person knows Scripture would think, he's the, about the greatest prophet Israel's ever had. You might say, well, why do you bring up the fact he murdered a man? Well, if we talk about him enough, we would bring that up, and we would learn that the anger got him in trouble. But I don't define Moses as a murderer. Why? Because God doesn't. God defines Moses by his repentance. Well, what about David? He was the greatest king Israel's ever had. Wrote some tremendous psalms that I read often that brings me before the throne of God to worship. Why don't you talk about his adultery? Because God doesn't define us by our sin. He defines us by repentance. And by the way, don't ever get too 
self-sufficient. Don't ever get too much on a high horse. You better be glad when God looks at me and you that we're defined by the blood of Jesus, not by our lifestyle, not by our sin, not by the worst day of our life. And so when I think about Isaiah, here's Isaiah, and he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. When I was in college and read that chapter, my first thought was, I wonder if he maybe told some dirty jokes or he cussed a little bit. As I grew a little bit and studied it, that's not what he's saying. Here's a man who is the most famous preacher of his day. He goes to worship, as you would think, the king's died. Where does the man of God go when the ruler of 52 years has passed away? In Isaiah's day, you go to the temple. He goes to the temple thinking in his mind, I'm going to pray for my nation. Probably had no thought, you need revival. He probably would say, I don't need revival. I'm preaching everywhere. I don't need revival. I'm, pursuing, I'm coming to the temple because I have a burden for my nation. I'm tell you what happened with Isaiah. And it's a dangerous thing. I think about it often. In fact, most days there's a couple of chapters I will read to try to help me not become like this. It's easy to become. He became too familiar with God. And in other words, he was around it so much, he had no awe. This happens. You can read the gospel straight through, and you'll get to the end of the gospels, any four of them. And you'll read that chapter where Jesus is nailed to a cross, thorns on his head, abused, and I can yawn. That's old news to me, and that's the problem. Uh, you can read about the virgin birth of Jesus, and you don't stand in awe of it anymore. I was preaching not too long ago, and a young Christian, I say young, somebody about 30, but hadn't been saved long, came up to me and said some of this, said, he called me Brother Steve. Hey, Brother Steve. And I don't know him. He said, hey, Brother Steve. And he had his Bible. He said, I've been reading the Bible some. I've been going to a small group. And he said, did you know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father? He prays for us every day. And I said, I, I believe I've read that somewhere. And he was like, he, 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 he walked up like he was saying, somebody just gave me $10,000. And I left that meeting thinking, that, that encounter thinking, Lord, that's, I want to be him. That's who I want to be. Because I've been saved not a year or so like he's been. I've been saved 40 years now. And so it's easy to approach an assignment like this if I'm not careful. And I, I've got personal prayer lists where I pray for myself. Don't lose your awe. Because I preach for pastors sometimes that will say, say, how's it going? Well, if I can make it about two or three more years, I'm going to retire. I bet that makes the angels shout. I'm hanging on to retire. I, I, I want the guy like Caleb, who's 80-something years old, and they say, hey, we know we promised you this mountain up there, but there's some battles. It's going to be hard. We'll give you a piece of prime land. He says, give me my mountain. I want what God promised me. What he's saying is, I don't mind a battle. I will not settle for less than God has for me, even if it means a battle. Sent people are defined by their repentance. And what happens is the more I know that God's forgiven me, you know what happens? You serve him because you love him. You ever served God because you thought you had to? That's the person who reaches a certain age and says, somebody else can do my job. I've served my time. 
kind of like I've been paroled and I've been out of prison. But you ever notice this? I've never had anyone say, I'm not going to eat any more homemade ice cream. I, I'm old. I've eaten my share. Somebody else, oh, no, I'll, I'll eat that till I die. No, nobody gives up what they have a passion for. I've done, I've done my time in the children's ministry. I, when I pastored, I'd have, I had about 2,300 people every Sunday morning when I pastored. So I'd have people, okay, a pastor's going to let you know, I've served my time. I'm going to give it to somebody else. And, and I would leave that encounter like, I'm not sure you understand who you're serving. I'm not sure you understand. Now, God does reposition us to do different things, but, but some folks almost phrased it like, I've been in this prison long enough, now I'm getting out. Paul says this, the love of Christ compels me. Let me say this. If a young person meets another young person and, and they begin to date and fall in love, you don't have to say, now listen, whether you want to or not, text them at least once a day. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. It ain't going to be no once a day. But if you came to me and said, there's a guy over here, why don't you, you, he needs, you call him once a day, he needs encouragement. I'm going to be honest with you, if I didn't have a relationship with him, about two weeks of doing that, it might become more of an obligation and duty, almost like, let me do this and get it over with. But serving God should not be that. And Isaiah may have lost his all. And so now he says this, woe is me. I'm melting is the phraseology there. I, I'm wiped out. I'm ruined. And what he says is, I'm a man with unclean lips. He's saying, Lord, I thought I was preaching. I thought I was witnessing. If I knew that you were all that, if I knew that's how exalted you are, if I knew they couldn't use one word holy to describe you, but the angels had to use, a, use it three times for emphasis. He's saying, I would have talked more about you. I, I, Isaiah's saying, I, I thought by witnessing three or four times a week, I was witnessing. If I knew that is who you are, I would have witnessed more. Ed Setzer says this, before God can let me be what he wants me to be, he first has to do in me what he wants to do. In other words, God had a mission for Isaiah, but before Isaiah could do what God wanted him to do, God had to make him who he wanted him to be. And I'm gonna tell you, Isaiah never got over this. I read through Isaiah a couple of months ago in my Old Testament. We get to Isaiah 64, that first verse is a great verse in revival. He says, oh, come down, Lord. And I often think, I wonder if this is, goes back to Isaiah 6 where he sees the Lord coming down, the Lord in all his glory. And even as a senior adult later in life, he could not get over the fact that God needs to come down. Third thing is this, sent people joined Jesus on his mission. Now look at how that's worded. I don't make up the mission. I don't have the authority to make up the mission. The mission isn't mine and the mission isn't yours. The mission is God's mission. For example, when God asked Moses to be involved in his mission, ultimately Moses died. Moses is a fairly significant leader in the history of God. But when you read Joshua 1 and Moses has just died, God steps up and verbally speaks to Joshua and all he says is, Moses, my servant, is dead now. You get up and get my people over that promised land. Because the mission of God trumps any human personality. The mission of God is what it's all about. 
rulers come and go, preachers come and go. Hey, I love Billy Graham, but when he passed away and went to heaven, I don't stop preaching. Why? Because it's not about Billy Graham. It's not about any human being. It's about the kingdom and glory and greatness and majesty of God. And so we join Jesus on his mission. And it happens here in Isaiah, but you see it also like Paul in the Damascus Road. You see it through Scripture. When you encounter God, he stops you. For example, if you asked Isaiah before he walked into the temple, if you said, hey, what you going to do today? He would have told you something. Well, after I pray, I'm going to go whatever he's going to do. He's going somewhere. But God stopped him. He didn't, his day was never, his life was never going to be the same. He left the temple to do something that five minutes before he went to the temple, he had no clue he was going to be doing. God stopped it, and then God sent him. He'll go for us. Book of Isaiah comes out of that yes response. God had a mission. And by the way, I don't know how much Isaiah knows in heaven as of right now, but I know one thing. The call of God would surprise him. Because until Jesus returns, there's always going to be Sundays around the world where somebody turns to Isaiah and, and preaches from the words that God used him to write. It's the word of God, but the word that God used him to write that's inspired. Uh, we're, we're going to be talking about this classic calling. Very few men who's ever lived have a calling that would be recorded in Scripture. It's very unusual. And so the call of God surprises us. In other words, he does more. Ephesians puts it this way. He does exceedingly uh, abundantly above more than we could ask or think. I can, I can think of some pretty big things that God could do, and God says, your mind cannot conceive what I would want to do through a life that is totally yielded to me. And we find that from Isaiah. And, and so he goes. David Platt, who is a pastor, wrote the book Radical. He used to be our IMB president. He says this. He says, Passionate worship always leads to personal witness. I'll say it again. Passionate worship always leads to personal witness. You say, I don't know if that's true. I, I worship, I don't always witness. He's talking about biblical worship. You, you can go to church and raise your hand. You can go to church and sing that. I, I sung the hymns for 19 years before I got saved. I, I mean, I, you can go to church. I'm not talking about church. You can read your Bible tomorrow. That doesn't mean it's worship. Platt is saying biblical worship, real authentic worship, always has two things. There's a revelation and there's a response. And if I don't have the right response, I really didn't worship. Proper worship is acknowledging he's Lord. Proper worship is saying, yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Whatever you want me to be, I'm going to be it. Wherever you want me to go, I'm going to go. Passionate worship always produces a personal witness. Why? Who could have the experience of Isaiah? Who, who can really worship a God and find out he was born of a virgin and not want to tell somebody? Who, who, who can read the end of Mark 4 and find out that in the midst of a storm, Jesus can simply stand up and say to the storm, be quiet. Hush! And the wind and the waves die down. By the way, those in the boat who saw it begin to worship. You know what they said? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Why would Peter say that? Jesus didn't preach about you being a sinner. Because when you see the greatness of Jesus, 
it's always a reminder, I can't do that. That's not who I am. And, and they even said this among themselves, who is this that even the wind and the waves would obey him? And so from that worship, those early disciples, most of them would die a martyr's death. Why would they die a martyr's death? Because they could not stop talking about the greatness and the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so passionate worship always produces a personal witness. God wants us to join him on mission. My, my, my wife's here today, and uh, she teaches, I think Gwinnett County is the largest county in our state. So she teaches third grade, and so she consistently witnesses. I say for this reason, you would think you can't witness in a school system, and, and I mentioned Gwinnett County to say, you know, it was some small system in South Georgia, so maybe everybody's a Christian, you know, principals and stuff. We're talking about a huge school system, one of the largest in the nation. And so she's constantly witnessing. It's not unusual for her to have, when I'm off preaching somewhere else, like way off, for her to go to our home church and a teacher's going with her. Uh, I did arrive last week, as I said, and she had shared Christ with uh, one of the new teachers, a young teacher, uh, before the kids got to come back. And so when she went to that revival, she went Sunday morning with me, uh, the music evangelist had some crosses. That neat story, a, a prisoner, uh, a guy went to prison, a businessman went to prison, was there for a long time, got saved, and somehow found a way to take paper and make crosses. And you wouldn't know because it, like, it looks like metal, but he does something to the paper, and so he talks about uh, uh, tattered and torn paper, how God takes tattered and torn lives, and, and he's being used everywhere right now. And so my wife uh, got a couple of those, and then the next night she texted me and said, hey, could you buy a couple more? Well, what's she going to do with them? She's going into the school saying to some of those people she's witnessed to, hey, you might... You might want one of these crosses. These are the neatest thing. Of course, y'all know what she's doing, building a bridge to talk more about Jesus. My, my, my point is this, wherever you are, I don't care what you do. Say, I'm a plumber. You could share Jesus. I always think it's hilarious. I, I was in vocational evangelism about 15 years, which meant I raised some of my own money to do what I did, like any, like a, any ministry, Billy Graham, all the guys do that. The state of Georgia is paying her to be a missionary. Isn't that interesting? Hey, she gets a check every month, and part of what she does, she's on the, she's on the lookout. So she might text me and say, you'll be home tonight for me. I think I'm going to a soccer game. She don't like soccer. She don't care about the soccer. I know why you're going. You're going to a third-grade soccer game because you can sit right by the parents. It builds relationships, and then you find out things. Well, my, my dad, a parent may say, has cancer. I'm going to put him on my prayer list. Oh, really? Well, wow, thank you. And before you know it, people begin to know, hey, Miss Foster is a person of prayer. So you'll get text messages. Hey, could you pray for my husband? His job looks okay, but they're laying off some people. And before you know it, here's a person getting a check every month by the state of Georgia, and, and she's in a place that I wish I was in because I'm always around church people. She's in a place where where there's Muslims and there's folks who are 30, so I've never been to church. And there's people, well, I used to go to church. People say, well, I can't believe everybody's going to go to heaven. And she's able to try to impact people. So God can use you. By the way, you ought not to leave here today saying, well, I'm, 
I'm convicted, but it just weighs me down. It ought to make you excited. You mean tell me if I'm retired? Yeah, God can allow you to live sin. By the way, just a week and a half ago, I did some preaching at First Baptist Locust Grove in Locust Grove, Georgia. Met a guy named Wesley, who right now is probably about 85. Just one of the most, he and his wife, just, just, just some of the greatest people you'd ever meet. And uh, so we built a little relationship. And so every once in a while he'll text me or, He's reached a stage, his kids are in Florida, where it was time to move closer to his kids because he's 85, some health. So he's in a retirement home type of thing where meals are provided. Get this, this man's been a deacon, he's been a Sunday school teacher. So he texts me and says, is there a time we could talk? And I said, we can talk right now. So he calls me, get this. He says, you know, I'm, I'm in this uh, retirement house, they have their own house, but it's a retirement thing. And he said, there's not a chaplain here. I said, yeah. He said, God has laid on my heart to start a Bible study. I've already asked people, they said they'd like to come. I'm just wondering, since you do evangelism, what would be the best book you think to start with? And we talked about the Gospel of John. Isn't that amazing? An 85-year-old Christian, you know what he said? He said, he said, Steve, I believe with all my heart that the sovereign God has brought me to Florida and put me in a place, he said, most of these folks like me, his words, they're old. But it's amazing how many do not know Jesus. He said, God has probably placed me in my last place before I go to heaven to shine the light of the gospel. Isn't that awesome? I'm gonna close with this. About five or six years ago, I uh, was traveling to speak to a group of pastors. And I got to the town fairly early and knew I would and was going to eat before I went to meet with those pastors. I stopped at Chick-fil-A. That ought to get me an amen right there, but I stopped at Chick-fil-A. And uh, did what I normally do when I'm on the road, placed my order, went to the restroom to wash my hands. But when I walked in the restroom, there was a little scene that I've never seen before. I walked in, and I was the only one in there, but there was a Chick-fil-A worker. And he was, had a brush cleaning the men's urinal. Well, obviously, I know that people clean the bathroom, but what got my attention was he was singing. Now, I can't sing, but he was singing. And he's scrubbing, and he's singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and pain to bear. And then he looks up at me and says, what well, a privilege to carry. And he raises his hand and he's singing. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I, I don't know how long I stopped, but I just came in and kind of, I just kind of stopped. I stopped because Jesus began to get all over me. And think about it. If you can scrub a toilet and you got joy, you got something I want. That was a Monday, and I, I, I thought about this. Whatever, whatever church he went to on Sunday, he left with something. He, he got the real deal. He looks up and paused after a while, and I said, you doing okay? He says, well, you know, ever since I met Jesus, every day's pretty good to me. I said, well, well, amen. I wash my hands, I go back. But when I set my table, it's like God just got all over me, set all over me and said, are you as excited? Because from a human perspective, just a human perspective, to travel to preach, not to preach, but to speak to a group of pastors is probably seems more prestigious than cleaning out toilets. 
It's like God saying, are you as excited as he is about what I've given you to do the, to do the day? Does your assignment give you as much joy as his assignment? And I said, Lord, I, I don't know if it does. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I have as much joy speaking to pastors as he does cleaning out the toilet. I mean, here's a man who turn, turns the bathroom into a cathedral of praise, his workplace into a place of worship. Doing a job, there's nothing wrong with the job he's doing. It's got to be done. But a job that most folks wouldn't say my goal in life is to clean out toilets. And yet, it's a reminder wherever you are. And I got to thinking, I wonder how often somebody's been at Chick-fil-A and overheard something. Maybe a guy sitting there eating and all, all that's on his mind is those divorce papers need to be signed. And this guy comes by and wipes the table and just says some kind of word about Jesus and the Holy Spirit takes it and that guy thinks. Doesn't tell the guy, that guy just thinks. I may try to see if my wife will give it more time. I'm going to tell you something that guy will never know. That encounter impressed me, so I went home and wrote it in my journal. I don't share it that often. I would say around 20 to 25,000 people have heard that story. I shared it about six weeks ago for the first time in a long time at First Baptist Thomasville. They had 11, 1,200 people there. He has no clue. I've shared that story and, and had people come up weeping saying, I serve as a chaplain in the hospital. I do this. And to me, I'm apathetic. I just, it's just a job, but it won't be tomorrow. Isn't that amazing? If you serve Jesus somewhere, you'll know some of the impact, but you'll never know the total impact that you'll have. That guy had no clue. In fact, he doesn't know. He doesn't know this day. He has no clue. When I walked in there, you're talking to a guy who preaches to a lot of church, a lot of prayer. He, he doesn't know that. He'd probably be, if he's still living, probably be amazed that I'm talking about that little encounter and how impactful his time of worship was. Now I want to ask you, are you living sin? Is the greatness of God enough to impress you? Is the greatness of God enough to give you a sense of awe? Is the greatness of God enough to make you want to live sin that every person you know would know how much God loves them? Let me end with this. I'm going to pray. I gave you three things. There's one thing I want to say that I think is so important. I want to put it on the screen. Sent people have been saved. Sent people have been saved. It's impossible to live sent. It's impossible to keep this enthusiasm. It's impossible to live in this sense of all of that, knowing him. I say that because there's a lot of us, I tried it before growing up as a teenager. There's a lot of us who attempt to serve God. Yeah, I'll, I'll do something for God, but the problem is we don't know him. It yields frustration. Sometimes it yields that person who once they get to a certain age, they're like, I've served my time. I, was, I won't. I won't Nothing else to do with this. But when you really love Jesus, you really know him, it's amazing how he will use us to impact. When every head bowed, every eyes closed, we're going to have a time of invitation. Uh, if you're here today after I pray, we'll sing a song. There'll, there'll be a staff member or two up front. If there's a decision to make, and, and I realize every service is not by itself. We're not in a vacuum here. Maybe someone's visiting today. You say, we've been thinking for some time about joining, and we know this is a church for us. 
what would we need to do? Just simply come down and tell one of the staff members, we'd like to join, or I'd like to join. If you're by yourself, I'd like to join. Maybe you're here today, and listen to this, maybe you're here and no one else even knows this, but in your heart, you're struggling with a call to preach. God's calling you to do something. But unlike Isaiah, you haven't said yes yet. You haven't said, here I am, Lord, send me. Why not say yes today? Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not sure I'm really saved. I'm not sure I know Christ. Or you might say, I know I don't know him. I know a lot of things about him, but I've never made that commitment. What would I need to do? Well, in a service like this, the easiest thing is just walk down and tell one of these staff guys, I'm not sure about heaven. They would love to talk to you about how you can be sure. Father, we come before you today. We love you. Lord, not only have you saved us, which is awesome, but you've also called us as we live on earth to live sent and to use us as your ambassadors to tell others the great news of the gospel, how much you love them and what you've done for them and how they can have a relationship with the resurrected Jesus. Father, we thank you that as the Father sent you, you also have sent us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I should stand this morning.